If you actually look at the history of breakfast, uh, it's fascinating. Except for noblemen, nobody had breakfast. And the idea of breakfast started in England with the Industrial Revolution, where men uh, would go to factories and they literally would work all day. And there were no lunch breaks. And, you know, they'd get home late at night. And so women would actually give them breakfast uh, before they went off to work. If you look at a modern diet, it's a Ramadan diet. You eat before sunrise and you eat after sunrise and you don't eat or drink between. And so that's actually where the whole concept of breakfast came from. It's really the Industrial Revolution. It, there was no breakfast. And then, of course, after the turn of the last century, cereal companies just made this what it is now and it, it's all marketing the keto diet is not new it was actually the word ketogenic diet was coined in 1930 at the mayo clinic and it was noted that uh, children with seizures which and there were no drugs back then uh if they were given a very high fat diet, 80% fat, 10% carbohydrates and 10% protein, that their seizures became actually easily controllable. And again, this is before drugs and it was really miraculous. Now, uh, unfortunately, as anyone who has children or grandchildren knows, it's really hard to get a child to uh, not eat carbohydrates. Uh, and I've learned through my medical practice that it's really hard to get an adult to not eat carbohydrates. And in fact, the modern keto diet with a very high fat load, low carbohydrate, 60% of people who go on a ketogenic diet stop within a month um, for really obvious reasons. I mean, you can you know, how many pounds of bacon with a cheddar cheese chaser, you know, can you have day after day? Just sounds, sounds like an American diet, diet, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's an American diet. <laughs> so um, over the years, when when drugs came out for childhood seizures, that diet kind of fell by the wayside. But as, as anybody knows, who have, have been on drugs or have treated people with seizures, these things don't make your brain work very well. Right. So in the 1990s, uh, it was discovered that uh, you could give kids another form of fat, which is now heard of called MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides. And medium chain triglycerides work like any other, Unlike any other fat, they're absorbed directly from our intestines and they go to our liver and the liver turns them into ketones, ketone bodies. Mm -hmm. And so kind of presto changeo, you could take MCT oil and it was found in kids that you could give them a lot less fat as MCT oil and they could have a lot more carbohydrates and a lot more proteins and they'd still be protected from seizures. So that sort of interest got me interested. And I, even in the plant paradox, my first, you know, monster bestseller, uh, I had a ketogenic diet that was based on MCT oil. Um, and uh, all of my books had this. So when I was 
trying to explain the benefits of ketones as maybe somehow it's a perfect fuel for our brain or athletes are taught, oh, a ketogenic diet, it's the perfect fuel for our muscles and we should always try to be in ketosis. Well, turns out not so fast. Researchers at the NIH, where I was a fellow in years past in Harvard, took human beings and put them into ketosis. And lo and behold, they found that even at full ketosis, athletes, mm -hmm. only 30% of their energy needs were met by burning ketones. Only 30%. That's not some perfect fuel. Yeah. And even our brain, which supposedly, you know, loves ketones, even at full ketosis, 30 to 40% of the energy needs of the brain need to be met by glucose, not ketones. So when I looked at that data, I'm going, well, shoot, uh, ketosis, I mean, all, all sorts of interesting things happen. You're, you don't get seizures. You lose weight if you do it right. And people feel good. What's actually happening? Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out the ketones aren't some great fuel, but they're what are called signaling molecules. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that it tells a receptor uh, information. Right. It literally tells. Transmitter. Yeah. It. Uh, and it turns out that mitochondria, the little energy producing organelles in all of our cells and in our brain and in our heart and in our muscles, get a signal from ketones to, believe it or not, actually waste fuel, to actually turn themselves into Ferraris rather than Toyota Priuses. Now... Um, it, you know, in the fuel crisis, most of us would probably want a Toyota Prius rather than a Ferrari, although we might want a Ferrari for other reasons, right. but certainly saving gas would not be one of the reasons to get a Ferrari. Right. But so these ketone molecules actually signal mitochondria to become really high performance racing machines and to actually protect themselves uh, at, at all costs. And we won't spend a lot of time talking about that. But in the process of doing that, the mitochondria actually improve their health and they also waste uh, some calories. And that actually accounts for why a ketogenic diet actually promotes weight loss if you do it right. right. But the ketogenic diet is really painful and boring. So if ketones are doing this to mitochondria, there must be other ways to do the same thing. And so the whole book is, okay, what are the other ways to do this? And one of the most interesting ways is time-restricted eating, uh, intermittent fasting, compressing our eating window. And uh, there's a fascinating study using Italian athletes, Italian cyclists. Mm -hmm. And they put these guys on a training table. Uh, they had to eat the same food for three months, exactly the same. They were divided into two groups, depending on how long during the day they got to eat. So one group had a 12 hour eating window. 
They had breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning. They had lunch at one o'clock in the afternoon. And they had to finish dinner by eight o'clock at night. 12 hours eating window, 12 hours no eating window. Uh, sleeping was part of that. The right. other group had a seven hour eating window. So they had breakfast, break fast at one o'clock in the afternoon. They had lunch at four o'clock in the afternoon and they had to finish dinner at eight, seven hours. They followed them for three months. Their athletic performance was identical, but the athletes who had the compressed eating window lost weight. The other group didn't, even though they ate the exact same amount of calories, same food. Hmm. The group with the seven hour eating window had a marker of longevity called insulin-like growth factor one, IGF one, uh, improved. And it's one of our best ways of looking at longevity. And so just by compressing the amount of time that they ate, it had a major effect on them. And what we now know is that this effect was telling mitochondria to waste energy and actually get healthier. Hmm. There's even more fun is plants, we know, they have mitochondria. And their mitochondria are damaged by sunlight, uh, which, you know, it's one of those can't live with it, can't live without it. Plants have to have sun and sunlight damages plant mitochondria. So plants make compounds in their leaves called polyphenols. Um, yeah. And polyphenols are all those beautiful colors that you used to see in Toronto this time of year was the leaves turned all the yellow and oranges and reds and purples. You know and the colors. Those were the polyphenols that were there in the leaves all along. And then the green chlorophyll went away and we went, oh. So the polyphenols are used by plants to protect their mitochondria. And when we eat these polyphenols, it turns out that our bacteria, our gut microbiome, just think polyphenols are delicious. They love it. And it turns out those polyphenols in turn are delivered to us. And lo and behold, they are protective to our mitochondria as if you were on a ketogenic diet. And so the whole trick, the whole book is, okay, there's all sorts of other great ways to get the effect of a ketogenic diet without doing a ketogenic diet. For instance, I'm having a cup of green tea as we talk, and it turns out green tea is loaded with polyphenols. And just the act of having green tea or coffee mm -hmm. uh, will uh, get my mitochondria in better shape. And it's got a fancy term called mitochondrial uncoupling, but that's not the point. I'm turning my mitochondria into Ferraris even as we speak. Many of your listeners right now are sitting there saying, I know I should exercise 45 minutes today. I also am not going to because I chose time with my friends or maybe I chose time on Instagram. Like that, That's entirely possible. And then they feel guilty about it. And there is a way to turn that inherent laziness into a motivating factor. The laziness comes from your cells. It comes from mother nature wanting us to not starve to death. So it'll your body, your meat operating system will automatically tell you to do something that's less work. 
And we can celebrate that and use it to motivate ourselves. You want to know the trick for the laziness principle? I do. I do. And, and we're getting into the laziness principle. So awesome. tell, me, tell me about it. Well, if you've ever gone to the store and maybe bought something expensive, the typical example is like high heel shoes or handbag for women, but for guys, it could be whatever, you know, leather jacket, whatever, you know, whatever you're into. Yeah. And it's on sale for 50% off. So, you know, you spend $500 on something, but you save $500 and you come home. Do you tell your friends or your partner, I saved 500 bucks? Mm-hmm. Or do you say I spend 500 bucks? Save fund uh, 500 bucks. Yeah, you save 500 bucks. Yeah. So your body, without your consciousness in there at all, your body prioritizes savings over expenditure hmm. because we are wired at our core to be lazy. Well, what if you did a highly effective and, and something that didn't even require sweat, but a highly effective workout that gave you more results than a sweaty, unpleasant workout at a gym with someone in spandex yelling at you to pedal faster? Yeah. Would you celebrate the fact that you just saved 50 minutes or would you say I did 10 minutes of hard stuff? Well, I would celebrate the fact that I saved 50 minutes specifically if I got the results that we're going to generate yeah. put in the same amount of time. But what you were just describing before is even after the 700 hours of you putting it in and working out and you didn't lose the weight, right? You probably gained a lot of muscle mass. I did. But you weren't, you weren't, you weren't, um, um, losing the weight, right? And and I see this happening all the time. In fact, I got a couple of friends. They they are religious about working out, and they are overweight, and 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 you know it's just not making a difference. And and I don't know what to say to this guy, but what I will say to him now is you got to listen to this episode that drops with Dave Asprey because I think nice. got some of the answers for you, right? So, but yeah, so keep so so so, so keep going. All right. So I I also realized. There are a bunch of different things that people actually want when they say they want to be healthy. So, Craig, you mentioned earlier, you know, working on your health. So, what's the measure of health that you're using? For me personally, yeah, uh, one is my energy level. Okay, energy, right? Which is uh, there. If I'm sleeping well, that's another another piece. sleep quality. Because I know when I'm stressed, or you know, you got lots on your mind, you're 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 staying up. Um, if physically, if if I'm feeling better because I'm being more active and, you know, my health regimen is I will go to the gym, but, you know, very simply, I'm not going to go to the gym for an hour every day. You know, if I have 15 minutes to go and throw some weights around, I'll do it or I'll play pickleball or I'll play tennis or I'll do, you know, well, I live in Costa Rica. So there's a thousand and one things to do to keep you, keep your body moving. But one of the main um, ways I would look at it would be energy. And then obviously if I'm not, you know, if I'm healthy, you know, when you're, when you're not healthy, you're getting sick, colds and flus. And obviously we live in a world of, of viruses right now. So there isn't one thing when you say healthy, that's actually your goal. Correct. Actually, as I was going round and round the mountain there, I realized, right. <laughs> Most people don't even answer as clearly as you did. And it's clear, you know, you've done some personal development work and you've thought about this a lot. The reality is that health is a mythical thing that cannot be identified and doesn't really exist. Hmm. Well, you're not dead. You're reasonably healthy, right? You're not in the process of dying. You're relatively healthy. So we tell ourselves we should be healthy, but we don't know what it is. We don't know how to measure it. Hmm. And in smarter, not harder, what I'm doing is I'm saying, all right, I opened the world's first biohacking lab in 
uh, Santa Monica underneath Arnold Schwarzenegger's office. It's called Upgrade Labs. And after oh, about eight years of working with clients there, there's five big buckets that people are looking for around their health. And the specific hacks that you use to get the most results in the least amount of time, they're different depending on your goal. So I teach people how to figure out what is your first and your second goal that's different than health, but might be a part of health. And then what are the things that give you the best results in the least amount of time and effort that pay you off in both of those categories? Right. So the five big categories are, ones you, one of the ones you mentioned is energy. And it turns out energy and weight loss are the same category. When you're fat, your body's putting energy into storing uh, energy as fat instead of to doing stuff. So if you have extra weight, that is a representation that you're not in a high energy state. And so energy and weight loss go together. Your second mention was stress. Okay. You want to be able to, to be better at stress for the first time in recorded history. When you ask most people why they go to the gym or even what they want around health, it's, I want to lose weight. I want to lose weight for the first time ever. I want to learn how to manage stress has eclipsed losing weight. That's how stressed people are right now. And the pandemic response from governments around locking people down is a major part of where that stress comes from, but it comes from social media. It comes from uh, basically a lack of control in our lives that didn't exist a couple of years ago and that won't continue to exist uh, if society is going to continue operating the way it's supposed to. Correct. The other goal you had, I would call resilience, but you said, am I not sick? Like if I'm getting sick all the time, I know I'm not healthy. Right. So Having resilience is around stress management, but it's also physical resilience. Mm -hmm. The other goals that, that people have, aside from energy, stress management, and resilience, is they want cognitive function. They want their brain to work better, right? A lot of people, I don't know why I'm putting my car keys in the fridge and I can't remember anything anymore, but it used to work. What's going on here, mm -hmm. right? So that's a, a surprisingly large goal. And other times, it's just, I want more muscle mass. And this is important as you age and also if you just want to look good. And then... The other one that comes in there is I want cardiovascular endurance. You know, if you get winded walking up the stairs, you have a problem here. And, you know, maybe you're not able to go for all those hikes just because you just get tired easily. Mm -hmm. So those are the main buckets. But honestly, if your goal is I want to run a marathon and I want to be uh, full of muscle, those are not compatible goals. Right. If you do endurance training, you drop your growth hormone and your testosterone levels, and you're going to be um, not muscular. And if you want to be muscular, you're not going to do too much cardio. So I see a lot of people like me, the mistake I was making, I was doing half weights and half cardio. I was overtraining. I was under eating. I was under eating protein. Um, and when you're overtrained, especially if you're under sleeping or you just have emotional stress all the time, your stress hormone levels go up and then you can't lose weight no matter what you do. So what would have worked better for me would have been working out only two, maybe three times a week and spending that extra time that I was spending in the gym, in the bedroom, sleeping. Right. And if I'd have done that and changed my diet, I probably would have lost some of the weight, but I had to address toxins and deficiencies as well. So in Smarter Not Harder, I teach you, all right, how do you identify which of those goals are most important to you? And then we look at what are the things that work better than the way we've always done it? Because we're focused on methods from 50 years ago, even though we have so much new information that's available to us. Right. For instance, cardiovascular. Most people don't like doing cardio, right? Some people love the endorphin rush you get from going out and running, but 80% of people who start running get injured the first year and they stop running because it turns out running isn't really that good for you. Sprinting is different, but endurance jogging is probably not a great longevity hack for humans. Right. So there's a technology driven by AI now 
that is better than high intensity interval training. And it's shown now in three studies that five minutes of this kind of exercise, which doesn't require sweating and only has 40 seconds of intense of intensity inside it is about six times better than doing a 45 minute spin class every day. I think I saw you do a post on this, uh, either today or in the last couple of days. Yeah, uh, probably. And, and this is just one of dozens of types of examples in the book. There are five or six different things that work better than picking up rocks, which is how we've always exercised. Pick up rocks, run away from tigers. Those are the two things. And maybe you could say stretching. But the world has changed where we know now how to modulate the signal that goes into the body. So you get just the right signal that takes the body very quickly, almost to the edge of, of being out of equilibrium. And then very critically, and this is a new concept that's in Smarter Not Harder, it's how do we quickly return to baseline? Because your body responds better when you have an intense stress and an intense recovery. And what we've typically done is we have, oh, a seven out of 10 stress and we try and hold it for a long period of time, which sucks. It drains your willpower. It drains your energy. It, it's not a way to be happy. Right. And then you think, well, I just did all this work. I must improve. But for the body, and it's like, no, that was just a, a negative stressor, but it wasn't a very positive inducer of, of resilience or stress. So all of a sudden you're getting 10 times better results in way less time, right? right? And this happens for almost every type of exercise input you could do. Same thing for things like meditation. Is it possible that you could get more results from one meditation versus another? Yeah, it is. And so I talk about really fast ways to accelerate things like meditation. So if you only had five minutes, what's going to work best in five minutes? And what if there was a possibility where five minutes actually gave you better results than five hours of meditation and you've been doing five hours every day thinking you're a good person? It's more than just the mindset. It's what I eat. It's how I exercise. It's the people that I hang around. Um, but it starts with the mindset. And if I would have laid in that bed and look, a lot of people would have been like, I don't blame her for giving up, man. That sucks. Mm. That's hard dealing with that much pain and, you know, losing your career and being in debt. I mean, we had $2.9 million worth of medical expenses. Um, so a lot of people would have understood if I just gave up and just threw in the towel and just did nothing. Mm. And I had to really get a hold of my mindset and what helped me the most do that. And I could instantly feel the shift from being going down this road of despair and self-pity and depression and just negativity was I got grateful. And mm. I know that seems so super simple, but I remember laying in the hospital bed and thinking, oh my gosh, what if I never walk again? What if tomorrow's the day they're going to amputate my leg? What if I die? What if, you know, what if I can't run? What if I can't work? What if my husband doesn't love me? And I was just like sinking down into really a dark place. Depressive, and depressive state. yeah, I was like, I, I've, I got to stop here and I got to focus on what I do have and what I can do and get grateful. And so I just really started writing down everything that I was grateful for, that I was alive, that I did have family, that I had great doctors and nurses, that I had my own hospital room. I didn't have to, you know, share a hospital room with anybody, um, that I had my own little mini fridge. And it's something that I still practice every day. And I not only practice it, I share it. And I have two different groups that uh, like I have my God squad 
We text mm. each other 10 things we're grateful for every day. And I have some other women that I sponsor and mentor, and we have a gratitude practice and it keeps us accountable. And, you know, I end my day with snuggling with my youngest daughter and saying, Hey, what's, what's the best thing that happened to you today? And what's one thing that you're grateful for? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's silly answers, but you know, it, our kids really see what we do. They are paying attention and it really hit me that she does have this attitude of gratitude when her and I were both hit by a car mm. and we were being dismissed, you know, we were released from the hospital and kind of so limping out. Another another car accident. You were in the car with your daughter and you got another. Oh, uh, well, we were actually on scooters, the little razors. Yeah. Going yeah. through a crosswalk and this car came flying through the crosswalk hit us both. That was a scary, that was scarier than my motorcycle accident. Knowing that how old was your daughter at the time? Oh gosh, this was during COVID. She was 13 and you know, we, California was locked down. I mean, everything was like shut down. So every day we would go on a scooter, you know, on our razors or Mm -hmm. we'd ride our bicycles and we were um, on our razors in the sky, you know, flew through the crosswalk, hit us both. I jumped out. I'd stop, put my arm out, by the way, that doesn't stop a flying car from coming. Mm-hmm. But that was like my first instinct was to try to stop it from hitting her. And luckily I think that helped because when he hit me, he slammed on the brakes. And so we were both thrown and not rolled over. But that moment where I couldn't see her and I didn't know if the car was going to be on top of her. Oh, it was just as a mother, the most terrifying moment. And luckily um, it was hard to get any, I I didn't, it was the one time I left the house without my phone and trying to flag somebody down when you've got blood all over you and we didn't have a mask on when in California, everybody wore a mask, even to go outside and go for a walk. Yeah. Finally, someone we, came we over. We know masking well. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, just on that note, how long did it take for someone to come up and help? Oh, it, it, I was trying to flag people down. The guy that hit us didn't have um, a phone. Um, my daughter was screaming. I had pulled, carried her out of the street. Um, it seemed like it took forever because cars were just driving past us. Finally, maybe five minutes go by, which seemed like forever. hours. Um, the, a lady that was in a house came out and let me use her cell phone. And I called, uh, I told people to call 911 and I called my husband and he came. But when we were in the hospital, the lady that shared the room in the ER that was packed because COVID, it was the beginning of COVID and there it was just packed. And she let us share a hospital bed. And the lady next to us um, was not nice at all. And she was mean and rude to the doctors and nurses. And my daughter and I, every time they came over, I was like, thank you so much for helping us. I know this could be so much worse. We appreciate all that you're doing and your service and you taking care of so many with COVID, just thank you so much. And she's like, Hey, we're going to take care of you. We're going to get a cat scan for your daughter and um, hopefully we'll get you out of here really quick. And I think because we were so grateful and so appreciative, 
they were coming over, bringing us crackers and juice and right. snack. And they got us out of that hospital like five hours later. That lady, they weren't helping her, but we were so grateful. And when we walked out of the hospital, this is where the gratitude is key. My daughter is, she could have played the victim. She could have been complaining. She walked out. She said, mama, we were rolled into this hospital on a gurney and we are walking out like rock stars. And I was like, Yes, girl, you are the victor of your life. We are walking. There is so much to be grateful for. And that's when it hit me that she, that those moments where I'm like, let's focus on what we're grateful for. She gets it. That's who she is. She is resilient. And so those little things, I think we need to work on our gratitude practice and strengthen our resilience before we actually need it. So I, I teach five principles to the guys that come and coach with me. And, and the first one is what we had talked about when we started having this conversation is mindset. You have to believe that it's possible first and foremost, because if you buy into the lies and, I, and, and they're not all lies, right? They're just general statements that don't apply to everyone, especially not me. So if you adopt that attitude and that mindset that right. I am not going to be that guy, I am going to do the things necessary. So the next thing would be your meals, right? So it's mindset, meals, which some people refer to as nutrition. What food are you eating? Is the food that you're eating conducive to boosting your hormone levels naturally? Because this is what I tell everyone. Food is the most powerful drug that you'll ever ingest. It's a drug and it causes a chemical and a hormonal response. So if it causes a chemical and hormonal response, is a bag of chips causing your testosterone to rise up? or drop down. Now you're going into the average guy because you're doing what the average guy does. Right. So I'm trying to create a separation between a guy that really wants it and a guy that's just going to accept getting older and being that guy that's in that study. Mm-hmm. So then the next thing, so it's mindset meals, movement. How are we exercising? So exercise is defined as movement. What happens is when we say the word exercise, we automatically assume we need to go lift big heavy weights and spend two or three hours in the gym I invest about 20 minutes lifting weights. I do the movements that have been shown by science, not just bro science me, the compound lifts, the multi-joint lifts, the ones that are not isolating just one body part where you're integrating your body together like it was meant to move. That's going to increase your testosterone. It's going to affect your growth hormone levels, which trickles down into your testosterone, that beautiful cascade of hormones that happens when you move in ways that your body was meant to move. So then mindset meals, movement. And the big one for me is community. So here's what will happen. Right. If you walk into a locker room of athletes, your testosterone will automatically go up. Period. It's that's that's what NFL guys miss the most. They don't miss the games as much as they miss the locker room. And the locker room is what causes them to rise up and compete. If you are in that environment and you compete, your testosterone will naturally rise. Well, Clark, I'm 50 years old. I'm never going to compete again. Why not? I'm not saying go wrestle or or go play tackle football. I'm saying get in a supportive community of like minded people because the opposite is true as well. If you go around and hang around a bunch of women, your estrogen is going to go up. Correct. Men sync up just like women sync up with their cycles. Men have cycles no differently than women have cycles. Right. 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 So it's mindset, meals, movement, community, and integrity. 
If you live your life with integrity in multiple ways, integrity in the sense that we understand it, like, are you a good person? Are you not cheating on your wife? Are you not cheating on your taxes? Because all of that stuff will have some sort of effect that has to manifest somewhere in your life. And it's usually stress. So what is the number one killer of testosterone other than being fat and overweight? It's stress. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. stress. So mm -hmm. having a life of integrity. And then when I'm coaching you, being a man of integrity as it relates to reporting to me. So mm -hmm. Greg, how did you do yesterday? You give me, so what I have guys do is, is report to me on a scale of one to 10 in those five. If they're above a seven, then we're good. I don't need to talk to you. But the minute you dip below in any one of those, you and I are having a conversation and we're raising that up. So it's not one single thing that kills your testosterone and it's not one single thing that will raise your testosterone. Right. It's a, a multi-pronged approach that is necessary consistently to get to where you want to go. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. You know, I mean, I, as you were talking about community, the first thing I thought, so I moved down to Costa Rica man, close to two years ago, we came for a working vacation and it's during the summer, going to bring the kids here. We're going to spend a couple months here. Everything was remote and, you know, virtual anyway. So <clears throat> just working here. Anyway, we decided to extend during that extension. We burnt the boats, we sold everything. We moved here and we've decided to raise the kids here. And it's been an incredible, incredible decision and, and, and probably one of the best decisions we've made as a family, but back to community. <clears throat> um, you live in a very healthy environment. Everyone you're around is active and competitive and uh, eating well. And the environment very much helps. But I was coming out of Canada, right? So I get down here and you look around, you're like, geez, everyone's ripped. Everyone's super healthy, right? Women look amazing. Men look amazing. Like, well, what, what is going on? And you just start to realize through sort of osmosis and that sort of, again, that community is you start to participate and you start to get sort of competitive. And again, your, your testosterone goes up because there's this need to start to, 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 to compete. And it, it could be anything from, you know, boating to pickleballing, to tennis, to, to, to working out to, and I see it in the kids as well. Like all the kids are physically healthy. I mean, everyone thinks my kid is six and they think he works out. They call him little Hercules. Like when he was four here, everyone was like real like shocked at like the 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 physicality of this this kid. Right. So I'm glad that he were down here because to continue this, because I don't know if we would be living in this type of environment in Canada. In Canada, you live inside, it's freaking cold. You're you're behind closed doors. Like your 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 option for being for movement and, and activity is very limited. So I love your five pieces to that. That's amazing, and it's so simple, right? I mean, it's this isn't rocket science. And I often talk around to, to some of my clients. I'm like, a lot of what I do is I teach common sense, right? And the problem with common sense is it's not so common sometimes, right? And that's also like you know the unconscious, right? The problem with the unconscious is it's bleeping unconscious, right? So we don't even know we're doing these things. And having a blueprint to follow is there. Talk to me about food. So you were mentioning like food is a big piece in this, which can help boost testosterone and that energy as well. Um, I must admit, I do, I do enjoy a bag of chips every once in a while, maybe too much sometimes. But what would be some foods to either stay away from, not the traditional, like if it's in a box and it's been processed, stay away from that. Um, but you hear things like the liver king, right? Where he was like, you know, eat raw liver and, you know, go down that road. So back to the myths out there, create some clarity or give me some guidance on what is the food that I should be focusing on? Well, I think any ism, right? 
veganism, vegetarianism, any of these isms, in my opinion, aren't good because you're not being balanced in your approach to life. I think personally, we as humans need all of the sources that are available to us in the sources being meats, stuff that grows from the ground, the nuts and things like that. But it's all in moderation. The number one thing I learned when I got into the gym business was moderation is the key to a successful fitness program. It was a big thing on the wall that Ray Wilson, the inventor of the life cycle had when I worked at Family Fitness Center, when I came out of the Marine Corps in 1983 or four, whenever that was. And it was then that I realized that we don't need to be Again, it's not this myopic focus on I'm never going to eat meat or I'm only going to eat testicles. That to me is ridiculous. Maybe a testicle every now and then is good for you, but I don't believe (laughs) what that guy was preaching, nor do I believe that I can't ever eat meat or I should only eat meat. These people that are doing these extremes, I don't think they're sustainable for the average person. So it really comes down to eating whole natural foods. One of my good friends was Jack LaLanne, and some people will remember him. Some people might not. But Jack would always tell me, Clark, if man made it, don't eat it. That was that simple. And everywhere Jack and I went, he would get a salad with 10 different vegetables. If it didn't have 10 different vegetables on, he would politely send it back until he got 10 different vegetables. And he would preach to me all the time, look at all of this color, think of all the nutrients and think of all the, the great just beauty that's involved. And the guy was so passionate about a salad. And it made me realize, look, man, we should be eating a nice piece of meat. Clark, look at this, man, all of the nutrients that are provided in this. Think of when you're eating it. I think the biggest thing is this, and this is coming out of left field in a way, but I thought about it the other night. Someone was talking about prayer. And what happens, prayer before food was meant to transition you into this eating mode, right? It's, of course, we give thanks and all of that. But I believe the bigger reason is we stop, we have a separation between busy life and eating food. Mm. But prayer and, and meditating in between whatever people define it as has become a thing and not attached to this transitional moment of time to where we can prepare our guts to now ingest the nutrients that are in that food that are meant to nourish our body, right? Right. That's part of these prayers that people say. So people will do it at dinner just to look good or whatever. But if we can get back to really having a moment where we say, okay, I'm going from a busy life to putting this food in my body that's going to nourish me to be strong and healthy. I think that's the biggest thing right Right. there. I made a commitment to do my best to live. There are all sorts of institutions. Everything you hear in America about uh, cancer recovery is fight cancer, the battle with cancer. There's one whole organization and a lot of good people in it. I think they're very well-meaning, but the entire organization is called Fuck Cancer. Okay. Well, the problem with all of that is I found that I had fought cancer for the last two years and fought it so hard that I was just worn out and getting beat up. Um, Either I was winning or I was losing. But it wasn't a sustainable thing. Uh, it was, you know, you, you, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight. Hope not. 
Um, I, I grew up many. in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I've been in many fist fights, and as you said, you win some, yeah. you lose some. Yeah, but you don't go into a fight when you're sick, okay, right. and weak. You you try to talk your way out of that one. Right. And I am afraid that's the approach. We're taking sick, weak people and telling them to fight when they're not strong enough to fight. And it hit me. I think the best way to fight cancer is to love life. And I have lost Almost all ability to choose. I didn't choose this, but I can choose what happens next. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I need to choose is I need to find some kind of purpose, some kind of adventure, something that I can get so passionate about that it consumes as much of my attention and my focus as all the grief and everything I've lost in poor pitiful me. Because I was doing that a lot, Greg. I was, as a matter of fact, I was, I'd never binge watched anything in my entire life. And I caught myself binge watching the, the walking dead. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why, why the hell am I doing this with that? And then it realized, I, I realized, oh, I really like this because it's about an apocalypse. I relate. Mm -hmm. And it's about the undead. And I kind of relate to that too. So I kind of understood. And having to survive, always survive, 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 survive. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. And even if they don't, I felt like a zombie most of the time, just kind of sleepwalking through my life. Yeah. yeah. So that was a real, a real wake up moment for me. And I knew the first thing I had to do is I'd read, I'm a big fan of Victor Frankl and his book, Man Search for Meaning. I'm mm -hmm. sure you know it. I'd used it many times in therapy to help people come back from persistent and terrible depression and anxiety and, and trauma and rebuild their life. And I knew it was, had always been a pillar, uh, a starting point with folks. If I can get them passionately involved in a purpose, then everything else kind of follows. And so I started praying and meditating every day, asking for a passionate purpose. What, what am I supposed to do now? Right. And for three weeks, it was crickets. And one day I decided, well, why wait for God or the universe or life, whatever you want to call it, to answer? Maybe I should unpack. I lived here for six months. Maybe I should unpack my boxes while I'm waiting for life to answer. And so I started unpacking. I unpacked a box and my mom had thrown some of my childhood things in it. And one was a journal that I'd been forced to keep when I was 11. And the 11 year old Dean, there's no way he's keeping a journal unless he's forced to. Right. And so I, I open it up and it says, when I get old, I gotta climb Mount Everest, swim the English channel. And when I read it, I was like, Oh my gosh. I forgot this guy. I wanted to be an adventurer. That's what I lived for. But I'd gotten responsible. I'd paid my bills. I'd gotten all sorts of uh, degrees and done the responsible thing. Totally forgot what I wanted in hopes of being responsible. Mm. And so I thought, there's nothing I need to be responsible for except for myself now. Right. Let's do one of these or both. 
And I knew with my immune system, it couldn't handle elevation, much less probably a, a meal in Kathmandu. Um, so <laughs> I decided to swim the English Channel. And I Googled and I noticed no active cancer patient had ever swum it. So I thought with the history teacher part of me is like, oh my gosh, first in history to do something. Even if I die trying, it leaves my daughter with a legacy of courage rather than just watching me die on the couch. How old is your daughter at this point? Uh, she, at that point, she was 21. Okay. Yeah, she was 18 when her mom died. Okay. Yeah. And so it was just devastating for her. Um, and so the more I got to think about it, the more excited I got about it, even though it made no sense whatsoever. And I started telling friends and family and they were shocked. My mom, I was surprised, started to cry. I'm like, you used to climb mountains. She said, yeah, but I was healthy. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, what do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. And then my doctor threw a fit and I said, hey, doc, I'm not going to die sitting on a couch watching Wheel of Fortune. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go swinging for the fence. Right. He's like, yeah, you get in a public pool, it'll kill you maybe. I'm like, I'm dying already. And so uh, without really thinking about it, everybody's like, wow, you really gambled getting into a pool. I didn't even think about it. Um, yeah. and as soon as I got into the pool and kicked off, it felt like me again for the first time in three years, I knew I was doing the right thing. You know, that it might've been a, 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 not getting in the pool would have killed you. Right. I mean, that's, that's the it, Yeah. I honestly think that if I hadn't gotten in the pool, I probably would be dead. If I, if I didn't have a daughter that I felt deserved my best effort to live. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't gotten in a pool. So I said, how are people doing this? So I start, you know, I was, I'm smart enough. I'm a special operator. I'm like, okay, who is out there crushing it in this particular industry? So I started looking at people that weren't just successful, but successful in a picture. So in special operations, when you go through selection, they have this circle and over that circle, they have other circles in it. And what we want is we want, we don't want the super fit guy or the super smart guy. We want the guy that all of his dots that overlap with all the circles, right? right. We want a well-rounded individual, emotionally intelligent, physically fit, you know what I mean? Smart, um, has an aptitude to learn. We want all of those different things. Think, you know, critical thinking, uh, fast on their feet. Um, so it's a balance, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I want to be the successful guy that's physically fit, has money, has a good family, all these different things, right? In the circle. I don't want to be the guy that's super physically fit and broke or the guy who's super wealthy, but is about to have a stroke because he's 300 pounds. You know what I mean? So I started analyzing this thing and I started, and I came up with, um, which I didn't even know about uh, who's it? Uh, is it Arthur Covey's, uh, seven habits of highly successful people? Uh, Steve Covey, Steve Covey. So, um, I didn't even know about that book at the time. So I wrote this article about the six, I think it was the six, uh, not habits, but six things that the most successful people do. Mm -hmm. It was all the same stuff. And I don't remember all the six things, but this is what I do remember. The article is on my website. There's a short little thing, but this is what I came up to. They all wake up early. Every mm -hmm. single one of them wake up earlier than everybody else. Consistently. They all wake up early. They all have a very 
defined fitness regime. And I'm not talking about like, you're, you're this, like, you don't have to do what I do. Like I'm on the, I, I go crazy, you know, I'm 40 years old and I'm still like destroying my body where I need cold. I feel like I'm, I'm training like a professional athlete, you know, I jujitsu four times a week. I do strength and training. I do all these other different things. Um, I'm constantly in cold baths and saunas and, you know, trying to, I'm on HRT. I'm trying to maintain biohacking level. Yeah. Um, but they don't have to have that, but they do something right. They're on, they're doing some sort of cardio, some sort of training training every single day, every day. There's some sort of fitness they're running, whatever it is. They all eat super healthy. They all are restricted. They all have either, they have a meal plan person that's that's meal prepping for them, or they have some sort of, some sort of, uh, restricted diet, you know, and then, you know, and then they, they crush it at work. And then they go to bed early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now there's some other things in there, but I looked at every person that I idolized or I looked up to like, I felt like their circle was complete, right? Their family, their fitness, their finances, all of that, right? The four F-bombs, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I saw. There was a trend with everybody. If If you had the four F's under control, right? Then the you all had the same kind of lifestyle. So then I, I said, well, shit, I can just, I can come, I can repeat that pattern. I'll just do what they do. And then what I started to do was I started surrounding myself with those same type of individuals because your net work is your net worth. Right. 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 You hang out with, I saw your post on that the other day and you got some backlash on it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. And that just make, I, I, I like that. I'm like, yeah.